Hello and welcome back to our podcast as we dive in once again to the book of Hebrews. Very glad that you uh, have chosen to spend the next few minutes with us. And uh, my name's Cameron. Looking forward to this discussion. Yeah, g'day. Ken here. Luke here. And I'm Lachlan. And I understand that, Luke, you and Cam um, had a brief meeting the other evening and it was only the two of you and you decided that the challenges of Hebrew 9 were sufficient that it was worth rescheduling so that all four of us could be here. So I'm, I'm hoping that we are up to the task. I think part of the incentive, Locke, is that when we're tried for heresy, it, it would be nicer to be able to share the blame among four people. <laughs> okay, okay. Then shoulder it all on just Luke and I. Thank you for incorporating us into that. We didn't want you to miss out, yeah. Ken. <laughs> now, <clears throat> I'm... I think most Adventists would be aware that some of the concepts and interpretations of sanctuary in the heavenly sanctuary have been a, a focal point for uh, di- uh, disagreement in the Adventist church. Um, what's fascinating, Locke, is that the lesson quarterly um, avoids some of the, the sort of hot topic verses ah. in its discussion. Uh, so... Uh, we won't. We're going to read the entire chapter. And um, I'm going to start us off, and I might read from the ESV. It's meant to be more, a bit more literal, isn't it, Mark? Uh Yeah, it tries to do a job of being um, somewhat more literal while remaining readable. Yeah, okay. Uh, now, actually, I'm going to preface that. Um, the temptation might be, I'm going to stop, uh, why, w- why would you not want to do a literal um, interpretation why would, why would any other version of the Bible be anything less than literal? And I, I do want to just say that while I've got the um, ESV open in front of me, I've got the message and the NIV in a parallel text. Um, because uh, in as much as cultures change and idiom changes and usage of language changes, uh, not just vocabulary, but the structures change, um, and in as much as any in- interpretation is a, um, I was going to say an interpretive exercise, which is, tautological but um whenever you interpret from one language to another you're trying to guess what that person means uh so i i'm not suggesting that versions less trying to be i I guess what i meant by literal is literal on a sort of a word by word basis rather than a sentence by sentence basis Mm. or paragraph by paragraph basis so when a uh, person comes to court and they don't speak uh, English with sufficient competency, um, one can engage an interpreter. Um, And the interpreter has what's called a duty of accuracy. Uh, And it's described in this way. I wonder whether it might be helpful in thinking about how a uh, translation from one biblical language to our English might uh, occur. Uh, This is the duty. An interpreter must, at all times use their best judgment to be accurate in their interpretation. In this code of conduct, accurate means the optimal and complete transfer of the meaning of the other language into English and of English into the other language, preserving the content and intent of the other language or English, as the case may be, without omission or distortion and including matters which the interpreter might consider inappropriate or offensive. And if the interpreter considers their interpretation is or could be in any way inaccurate, incomplete, or requires qualification or explanation, 
where the other language is ambiguous or otherwise unclear for any reason, then they must uh, immediately inform the court and provide the necessary correction, qualification or explanation to the court. Um, I think that's a pretty good uh, uh, mm. code of conduct or duty to apply. Yeah, I like that, Ken. Uh, chapter 9. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded in the tables of the covenant. Above it all were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry, but only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience or the worshipper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That is why he is the one who mediates a new covenant between God and people, so that all who are called can receive the eternal inheritance God has promised them. For God died to set them free from the penalty of the sins they had committed under the first covenant. Now when someone leaves a will, it is necessary to prove that the person who made it is dead. The will goes into effect only after the person's death. While the person who made it is still alive, the will cannot be put into effect. That is why even the first covenant was put into effect with the blood of an animal. For after Moses had read each of God's commandments to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats along with water and sprinkled both the book of God's law and all the people, using hyssop branches and scarlet wool. Then he said, This blood confirms the covenant God has made with you. And in the same way, he sprinkled blood on the tabernacle and on everything used for worship. In fact, According to the law of Moses, nearly everything was purified with blood, for without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy place every year, the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just 
as it is appointed for men to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Phew. All right, I can see why you decided to wait until there were more minds here to tackle this one. It's it's fairly, fairly dense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One question that we've not decided prior to this discussion, um, in fact, uh, rather embarrassingly, uh, time has come to confess to our listeners that um, the lead-up to this discussion was derailed a little bit by the discovery that a newly restored 1943 Spitfire is for sale for the measly sum of of three and a half million pounds. And uh, we were speculating as to whether we could chip in to uh, to cover this cost. And then um, that distracted us somewhat. So uh, now we have to make decisions during the recording when our listeners can hold us to account. But one thing we, we haven't decided is whether we were even going to discuss the question when Christ entered into this holy places, is what it says in the ESV. Is it talking about the holy place or the most holy place? And and this seems to be one of the things that has caused disagreement. Uh, my question is, is the question even worth asking? No. Well, and the... thank you for joining <laughs> us this evening. We hope you've enjoyed our podcast. <laughs> we'll see you all next week. And uh, Hebrews 9, it's, it's, it's a book. It's a chapter. I, 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 I don't know that it's not worth asking, um, uh, but because I think uh, if you look at the nature of the argument that's being made, uh, it would suggest it's a reference to uh, the most holy place because he's referred to the priests. Uh, the authors referred previously to the priests doing their you know, daily priestly duty and once a year, uh, the high priest going into the most holy place and... Um, he's previously saying, you know, Christ is the high priest. So one might think he's drawing comparisons. Well, and the argument seems to be the fact that part of the tabernacle was split off and could only be entered once a year signified that your day-to-day activities were in some sense um, done in a state of separation from God. So God had this process for atonement put in place, but he said you can only do it once a year because because what you're doing every day is important and useful and part of the priestly duties and all the rest of it. But there is some separation here. There's some sense in which the people couldn't well, so... enjoy immediate access to God. And and so the once a year thing is then uh, implies separation from God, but then the contrast is made with Christ and we've already noticed this in previous chapters. One of the things that distinguishes Christ is that he has, he sits at the right hand of the Father. He's the perfect expression of God. He has, there's an intimate knowledge and connection and between the two. There, there's a level of immediacy, um, proximity. Um, well, what I notice um, from your comments, Cameron, from the reading that we've just done now, and I think it's a very interesting contrast to point out, is, as you say, the the rituals of the earthly tabernacle had to be repeated. That's something that's emphasized. That, you know, you had the daily ones which had to be repeated, and then you had the special one, which was done once a year, but it had to be repeated every year. And Hebrews 9, it seems to me, goes out of its way to emphasize that Christ did did all of these things. His, his actions encompassed and surpassed and improved of 
all of these rituals at once. He did them one time. It says it um, in verse 12, and it says it again in verse 26, that all yeah. of the mm. repeated yeah. actions, the yearly ones and the daily ones in the the holy place and the most holy place, all of those were covered in one instance, on one occasion, by the actions of Christ, is is how I I I, yeah. I see the the verses. In other words, your answer your answer, Luke, to the question, is this the holy um or the most holy place? Is yes. Yes it is. Well if if it is if it is one time only, by definition it must be both places. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um it's it's interesting if I can just throw in well, you know, we read from different translations, I think, and so we got slightly um, different windows into these verses as we went through the chapter. I happen to do my reading tonight from the New Living Translation, uh, which is um, intending to be a little bit more readable and a little bit more thought and intention based on its translation rather than than sort of more word literal. So we can refer back to Ken's observations about what makes a better a better translation. Um, that question would go forever. It's interesting that the New Living Translation actually resolves this tension and clearly calls it the most holy place. In, in verse 12, uh, New Living Translation reads, with his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. I, I accept that that is a is an interpretive process. Uh, I'm looking at my New American Standard Bible, which is one I've referred to before, when I, when I do want to try and um, uh, get a little bit more word literal. Um, it, in verse 12, clearly says, uh, entered the holy place once for all. Some of you had translations that pluralized that, the holy places. Places, um, yeah. So there, there seems the to be NIV says most holy place. Look. Well, there you go. Although I, um, I, I would note that all translations agree on the the concept of one time, which to me is really the yeah. more significant thing. If it's one time, yeah, it it, it can't yes. be two separate occasions. That that's that's yeah, a yeah. direct contradiction. I I think your point's a good one, Luke. Uh, also, I think that it's reasonably obvious in the pattern of the book of Hebrews that we've been seeing so far, there's always this contrast being made. This is, you know, in the old time, God communicated through the prophets, but now we have a better revelation through his son. That's more or less exactly how the book starts. Mm. And that contrast mm. is over and over and over again repeated yeah. um, in, in every sense. We've, we've had it. The Sabbath, Sabbath rest, yeah. you know, there was a rest and then there was the rest of the promised land. Mm. But even that wasn't the real thing. Yeah. But in Christ, we see the real thing and we, uh, uh, the real Moses figure, um, the real Melchizedek, yeah. the real he- heavenly messages in, in Hebrews 1. Yeah, yeah. Um, and in fact, Locke, the message picks up on this because the message doesn't say holy place or holy places or most holy place. Um, the message says, which is obviously very much a um, paraphrase, uh, but it says this for verses 11 and 12. Uh, when the Messiah arrived, high priest of the superior things of this new covenant, he bypassed the old tent and its trappings in this created place and went straight to heavens in inverted commas tent, mm. hyphen the true holy place. Yeah. As in the place which is actually intrinsically holy. Yeah, yeah. Not just appointed to be holy, but this is the this is the yeah. the actual holy place. And so that, I, that I think this is... 
clearly the point, um, and maybe this is uh, a, a place at which we could we could slightly move the conversation on. I think we won't really add a whole lot to that word study. Um, but what is clearly the point is the the opening of chapter nine was a short summary. It's clearly intended to be delivered to people who are already familiar with this historic tabernacle. And it's clearly intended because of how verse 5 ends. You know, it, there was a very, very quick rundown. There's the holy uh, tabernacle, first room, second room. In the second room, there was the jar containing the manna and so on and so on. Above the ark were the cherubim of divine glory. Um, but we cannot explain these things in detail now. That, that's how verse 5 ends in, in New Living Translation. It's it's not trying to, if the point here was to go into great detail about the nuance of all of the different meanings of those things, I think we've already seen the pattern of the author of Hebrews. They would have picked it apart in detail. The fact that Hebrews 9 opens with a just a four or five verse overview, remember this thing, here's a quick refresher to bring it back to the front of your mind, well... While you're thinking about that, Jesus just did it all but better because he's the better high priest. We've already had that in the last chapter. And what does the high priest do? The high priest does a whole lot of these things in the tabernacle. Well, and as a better high priest, Jesus just does these things better in a better tabernacle. It, it's true. Mm. There are, and, and you've drawn out those two things, uh, Lachlan, that the introductory part of chapter 9 refers to. It refers to the features of the tabernacle, if you mm. like, the physical features of the tabernacle, and it refers then to the functions performed by the priests and the high priest in the tabernacle. So it says those two things. And then when you come uh, to uh, look at Christ, uh, you see a reference again to the particular tabernacle. Um, mm. Indeed, it is one uh, that's greater and more perfect, uh, that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. Um, yes. Uh, so, so we look at that, and then we go and we look at some of the functions that were performed and, and do comparison of Christ's performance of those functions now. Um, particularly, um, this is a little bit of a repeat of what Luke said, but um, I think the contrast is interesting. The high priest went once per year. Mm. Jesus goes once for all. Um, yes. Um, uh, so uh, it's still once, um, but it's just once within a different time frame. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and, and I think the other thing about the, the, the nature of this tabernacle uh, is that it's a greater and more perfect tabernacle that's not man-made. That is not a part of this creation. One of the And, and when you go over um, to verse 24, for Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary, that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself. Uh, now to appear for us in God's presence is what the NIV says. Now, I know there are some nuances in that uh, as well. Um, but um, uh, one of the things that frustrates me a little about the way that we sometimes talk about uh, the sanctuary uh, and the heavenly sanctuary is that we limit it in uh, to being one that is essentially part of this creation. Um, uh, and and it, it frustrates me because it indicates such a limited view of what heaven must be, as if it is mm. just something uh, a bit bigger and better and brighter 
than what we know here, but it's essentially the same. Uh, uh, streets of gold, um, you know, rolling hills, um, a river and a tree, uh, a few trees. Uh, God likes mm. trees, by the way. Uh, but, um, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I mean, as if it's just a, a, a something... It's a bit like moving from, uh, you know, the local motel to, I don't know, Sapphire Resort or something, you know, um, <laughs> where the movie stars go. Um, it, it, it's such a limited concept of heaven. It frustrates me no end. Um, you may have picked that up. Um. <laughs> one of the factors, one, one of the defining features of heaven, which is endorsed by Scripture, Ken, um, is not so much its architecture, although I guess reference is made to streets of gold and pearly gates. and um, uh, But the defining quality seems to be that God will be with his people, mm, mm. is how the book of Revelation ends. Mm. And uh, it's, a, it's a bit like... So, so imagine this. God, in heaven, people commune with God and each other in a very intimate way um there's harmony there's peace and people adore god worship him um and what a what a place to be but earth isn't like that uh so how are you going to model the heavenly things to people on earth that's that's a problem isn't it because the situation is fundamentally different so what are we going to do well we'll have a tabernacle and it'll be a tent made from animal skins because that's what the people have access to um I think perhaps the architectural elements of the sanctuary less significant than the the problem that the person is trying to solve. There's heavenly things we want to educate people about God and and to help restore people to God, but they're not fit yet for heaven. Hmm. Uh, so what are we going to do? Well, we'll we'll have the daily sacrifices and we'll have a holy place. We'll have people who intercede for people between God and um nurture them and guide them towards God um, and then we will have something that represents God's very immediate presence uh, but that part will only happen once a year and what verse 8 says is that there's an intentional didactic lesson because in verse 7 it says uh, into the second most holy place only the high priest goes only one person can go mm. um, and he can only go once a year in other words this is not something that everyone has access to so you can imagine, like it's almost like the daily part, the holy place, and the the ceremonies that happened in the courtyard of the temple, were there to tell the people that they can have access to God. Mm. That, but the most holy part is there in verse eight. The Holy Spirit is indicating that the way into the holy places is not yet opened. Yeah. So the the tabernacle is there to to teach the people that they can come to God, mm. but also to teach them that they're not. They can't come to God. And that um, this high priest then becomes a really uh, important figure um, representing an an intercessor between the people and and God. And uh, so it's almost like in the first half of the chapter they're saying it was really important to have two chambers in the tabernacle. Mm. People had to be taught that they can come to God, but there is also just our state of being and our own petty um, sins. It makes reference to unintentional sins there even. Mm. Um, uh, do just 
impose a separation. We we are not able to commune with God as things were originally intended. Um, so we need these two spaces to emphasize the the availability of God and the sort of unavailability of God. But then Christ then Christ has come, and we just don't need that anymore. Well, do you know what I like about what you're saying, Cam? Um, the the detail which is so often remarkably um, minimized in our traditional Adventist tellings of some of these things, especially in relation to Hebrews nine. What happens when Jesus dies on the cross? The veil that separates the holy place from the most holy place is torn supernaturally. The Gospels clearly go out of the way to describe it as not being just sabotaged by the priests, but but from top to bottom in a way that could only be done supernaturally. That seems to be the implication. Um, what you're describing as being the tension represented by that veil is in fact torn away by Jesus and his and his death and resurrection on the cross. Maybe the ambiguity in the second half of the chapter is deliberate. Wow, what what if it is? <laughs> what if what if the author's saying, you know, we had two spaces, but now there's just a holy space. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um the presence of God. Christ is now the presence of God. That's that's the yeah. the real holy space. <laughs> and that's where Christ is and through Christ cuz Christ is Christ is one of us like the priest, mm. but he's also like God. The very what's the what's the phrase in Hebrews one? I need to look it up, but the the perfect representation of God, or the very essence of God, uh, the exact representation of His glory, of His being, mm. the exact representation of His being. Look, I, I don't want to I don't want to divert the discussion from this. I think it's a very important point, and I don't want this thing that I that I'm about to raise to uh, deep to be the focus of further discussion. I just think it's interesting. Uh, my understanding has always been that Jesus said, when I go, I'll send the Holy Spirit. I'll send the Comforter. Um, and that then we have Pentecost where the Holy Spirit comes and the Holy Spirit starts the Holy Spirit's work in the world, if you like. Um, uh, that understanding seems to be incomplete when you read um, verse 8 because it says the Holy Spirit was showing by this. Um, yeah. <laughs> so it seems the Holy Spirit was doing things back in the old tabernacle times as well. Um, uh, uh, that's consistent with a Trinitarian view um, uh, of an eternal God, uh, but uh, it was just something that jumped out at me. Uh, hang on, hang on. What was the Holy Spirit doing then? Uh, the Holy Spirit didn't do anything until Pentecost. Um, <laughs> clearly that's a, uh, uh, a misunderstanding on my part. Um, yeah. Um, well, there was another thing but, that that really jumped out at me. If if we've if we feel like we've gotten as close as we are going to get to a to a resolution of this holy place question, I, I've got another one to raise. But uh, did, was there anything else we wanted to add in there? I I just wanted to throw in something about the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit being at work. Um, uh, my favorite. This is not really relevant to Hebrews. Uh, but my favourite uh, reflection on that uh, was the uh, theologian D.L. Moody was once asked why he continually urged Christians to be filled by the Holy Spirit. And he said, well, I, I need continual in- infilling because I leak. Yeah, <laughs> yes. isn't that wonderful? Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's, that's, that's pretty deep, actually. You could ponder that one mm-hmm. um, yeah. at length. 
Yeah, look, the thing that I wanted to just draw our attention to a little bit, because it seems that it, it forms a reasonably heavy part of the of the point towards the end of this chapter. And when I first read it, I actually found it troubling. On reflection, I think that there's some valuable meaning in here. It's verse 22. Um, For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So in the logic, what Hebrews seems to be saying here was that that a bit like a will there's only it only has legal significance it only comes into effect after the person dies that's why the first covenant that god put into place with moses was put into effect with the blood of an animal so it's kind of tying together that idea of sacrifice death and the activation of the first covenant it it then in this verse that i pointed to Verse 22, in fact, according to the law of Moses, nearly everything was purified with blood, for without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. Well, I agree with him. Seems like there's a lot of purifying with blood in the law of Moses in the Old Testament, but that seems to be exactly one of the things that's a little on the nose to me with my contemporary modern or even yeah. postmodern sensibilities. Um, what, do we, what do we do with this? It's macabre, isn't it? Yeah. You know, I mean, what, what, where today... I mean, uh, where today would you go and say, well, I'm sorry, uh, I can't forgive you until there's some bloodshed. Um, yeah. uh, in fact, bloodshed seems to be anathema to forgiveness. Um, mm. Um, mm. Ken, there's, there's a deeper thing there when you talk about things being uh, anathema. Um, in After the flood, uh, God says to humankind look you can go and kill these animals to eat them now uh, but be careful blood is sacred mm. and i will demand a reckoning from you for all blood shed, shed human as uh, animal as well as human mm. um, so this is a very serious thing you have to do it to survive you have to to survive you have to go out and kill animals and eat them um, but do this with with a serious mind mm. Um, recognize that the thing you're doing is is not really not really the way I'd like it to be. Mm. And um, when you then um, take that into the um, context of the crucifixion, the crucifixion is an awful event. I mean, the killing animals for the forgiveness of sins is an awful event. Killing anything innocent, mm. it, it's an awful thing. So that there is something about it's not just the animal sacrifice, like it's the, it's the the story of the crucifixion is mm. troubling. Mm. I think that the concept of forgiveness, a very very deep one, that is worth looking at in more detail than we'll have time for in this episode, um, and I think it's very. It's a very interesting verse in that context, Locke, to, to ponder what actually is forgiveness? What are the prerequisites for forgiveness? Mm. What does forgiveness actually involve? <laughs> well, you're, you're heading in the direction of the comment that I was, I was going to make on reflection. Um, I mentioned that this, this verse, my first, fe- my first feeling of it was, hang on, I don't agree with that. Surely there's ways to forgive without shedding blood. Um, <laughs> but what you're saying, Luke, is actually tracing along exactly the th- thought process that I, I had in my mind. If you try and ask the question, okay, then what is forgiveness? Um, 
Surely one plausible definition of forgiveness is that it it involves, it, it may be more than this, but it certainly involves an absorption of pain. I mean, forgiveness comes when harm has been done, pain has been inflicted, hurt has been caused. I mean, if if no bad thing has happened, then there is no need for forgiveness. Mm. So, so forgiveness comes when there is something to forgive, and the act of forgiving is 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 intimately connected with relinquishing revenge. So, so the person who is who is offering forgiveness is the person who has, in a sense, been wronged. When, I feel some meaning here is 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 communicated without the shedding of blood there's no forgiveness without what that blood shedding of blood involves pain so true forgiveness comes at a cost it, saying to someone that you forgive them means that you're absorbing the hurt that they caused you're absorbing it rather than reflecting it bouncing it back respreading it you know that's what yeah. revenge and retaliation are. there's all sorts of other ways to deal with pain that, that you may have received Forgiveness is actually a hard one in precisely this way. And I wonder, I think this is reading a little bit more into it than, than the line of logic that's being outlined here in Hebrews, but, but I feel like there is actually something powerful that I find recovers a little bit of value um, of just the, the analogy, the wording that's used here. Yeah. Look, I'd also like to pick up one other thought. I don't know if this is helpful, but uh, you talked about our modern sort of uh, viewpoint that seems to regard the needless slaughter of animals as as uh, rightly being a serious issue. Mm-hmm. These these people were not like modern Australians who took their meat off a shelf at a supermarket. They weren't even like modern beef farmers with 10,000 head of cattle with a number inscribed on an earpiece that were rounded up by helicopter and led to an abattoir and processed in a highly automatic way. I think of the Monty Python sketch in which John Cleese tries to um, design a hotel, but he's only ever designed abattoirs. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's it's full of rotating knives and things. Um, these, so, so it's all very well to say that we're all sensitive in our modern day and age. Well, I'm not, I'm not sure. These people lived with their animals. Mm. In many cases, animals would have been brought into the household at night mm. to protect them from predators. Um, they lived with the animals 24-7. Uh, they had to kill the animal with their own hands. Uh, I think that it's quite possible that the sacrificial system disturbed them more than it disturbs us. Yeah, okay. Okay. Uh, and and um, it, apart from that emotional distress it cause them obviously there is the problem of killing the the lamb and even if it serves the most wonderful didactic purpose there's still a problem with saying let's go kill the lamb um i wear leather shoes so i don't come from this with particularly high moral ground um i benefit in many ways even as a vegetarian from the slaughter of animals so um uh uh but so let's put that problem aside and let's look at the didactic part. When they bring a sacrifice in, uh, they say part of this is is saying I I have caused pain to other people, mm. um, and as a token of my willingness to wish, were it possible, and it may not be possible, but were it possible to erase that wrong and make it right again, um, uh, I I would do that even at cost to myself. Mm. Mm. So. 
so it's not the person who's asking forgiveness in in some of these situations described with the sacrifice is the person supplying the land. Yes. So they're saying a pain I've caused a pain, and a pain, a forgiveness involves the absorption of of suffering, as you said. Um, but I am willing to take part in that myself. Mm. You're talking about the absorption of suffering. Um, I keep pondering a challenging concept, but I wonder it's not one that I haven't encountered in other Christian writings, and indeed it is present in the Bible, which is when we're talking about the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness in this verse here. It's a bit more than the existence of pain. What it's actually referring to is that it is not possible to have forgiveness if there is not also punishment or consequences. Hmm. Um, and that is a fairly challenging concept to ponder. Um, but I think, it, and I'm not advocating for it to be true, at least not in the exact words I just stated, um, but I think it's worth thinking about very, very seriously. Uh, is it possible to be forgiven if you or a surrogate of you are not in any way punished for the crime that you are to be forgiven for? Um, because I think about something like um, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I think about uh, something like Crime and Punishment uh, by Dostoevsky. Um, and they certainly seem to indicate that a punishment has to take place. There's a, there's if it, there's a, another story that's one of the Father Brown mysteries by Chesterton, where um, where a priest kills his brother by dropping a heavy weight on him from the balcony of a church, and um, because his brother is going around the village seducing women and being a moral crazy person, he's his righteous brother, the priest, is upset at the pain and suffering he's causing and kills him um, and um, tries to pin it on the village idiot, the madman, who happens to be present when it happens but who's off his rocker and so um, is a sort of an easy scapegoat and also one who, who won't be punished for it hmm. because being not of sound mind, he, he won't be hanged. Um, and so that's the plan. When, when Father Brown unravels the mystery... Um, and confronts the priest with his need to ask forgiveness, the response of the priest after he has the experience where he says, yes, I, n- I need, I've done wrong here, um, is to go to the police and give himself up. It's very similar to crime and punishment. So, yeah, so the, so the sentiment is not so much that um, an acknowledgement of wrong has to be followed by punishment. An acknowledgement of wrong leads naturally to the state of mind where you see justice, uh, you see the, you know, you give yourself you up to the hangman. that you deserve punishment. What we're talking yeah. about there is less forgiveness than it is remorse, um, uh, which is sometimes, and not always, the other side of the forgiveness coin. Um, uh, it's, it's an important concept. I still struggle with uh, surrogate punishment, Um it, it's uh, all of these discussions uh, that we've had are, are interesting. Um, they feel a little bit to me like we're trying to help God out with a justification for a very difficult <laughs> statement uh, that is on its face unpalatable. 
Um. Well, well, Ken, if if we don't help him out, who who will? <laughs> <laughs> it seems. Yeah. I, I mean, Locke's original uh, objection, which I shared, that it feels just a bit difficult. Um, it is just a difficult it is. statement. What what's certainly true? What's certainly true is that it was not difficult to the people listening. Yeah, and this is interesting though because if it is div- and and I do find the the whole Old Testament um sacrificial system to to be difficult. I remember really really clearly um you know when my son was only very young, 2 or 3 years old, we'd moved to Germany when he was a year and a half and church our church experience happened entirely in german it meant that he had the remarkable experience of not picking up anything that occurred as a young child in the christian community that our family was was involved with so the only messages and sort of understandings of things that he got were were what he got at home from us as parents and on one occasion, it was probably around Easter time, it was maybe a special Easter service, there was some art panels with artwork up the front and there was a painting of a slaughtered lamb, a, a sacrificial lamb. It really bothered him. He was really put up, why, you know, why, and he, you know, lots of why questions, not a lot of understanding. It was, I found myself <laughs> doing my best to try and explain and simultaneously thinking, who on earth cleared this to put up the front of a church where there'd be young children? It's not even appropriate. And then thinking, well, how can I make that judgment <laughs> when it's all through the Bible? Um, you know, it just it just highlights that there is a difficulty here. What What is happening in Hebrews 9 and, and in many other places in the New Testament is that Believers in the way of Jesus are making sense of the experience of Jesus in light of this cultural heritage. What? You know, describing Jesus as the sacrificial lamb makes sense if you're happy to accept the sacrificial lamb, if that's something that makes sense to you. I, w- I wonder if, it, would it be okay? Would it be okay for someone to say, look, that that metaphor, there's lots of metaphors of Jesus and of God, that metaphor's not actually working for me. Because, for whatever reason, there's too much cultural barrier for me to access the, the 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 sacrificial lamb picture. I wonder too whether or not we might be able to say something like this. Perhaps I may subject myself to the criticism that I've recently made. Um, uh, but uh, to say, uh, whatever it might be that was necessary in that old system, it is a good thing that as a result of the acts of Jesus, that system is no longer required. Hmm. Okay. Simply leave it, it at does, that. It, it, well, <laughs> yeah. it, it doesn't, yeah. I mean, let, it doesn't really remove the uncomfortableness around the whole thing, especially in the context of Hebrew 9, when you consider that Christ was brutally murdered mm. Mm. in a very painful <laughs> and protracted process. Yes, that I realise. So I may have opened myself to, to the same criticism I just made, and, and deter <laughs> no. other people from from you know publicly uh, convince other people not to commit crimes. Mm. Um, but but Luke, there is a difference. I didn't say there wasn't a difference. Um, I'm just saying it's also uncomfortable. Mm. Mm. It's also uncomfortable, um, but there is this difference between the lamb and Christ. The lamb didn't give its consent. Oh, for, for sure, and. Um, and Christ, and it's really that Christ saw that 
although he he asked it not to happen, he said, no, but if, you know, your will be done, not mine, he saw that whatever was about to happen was going to become very important to help, whether, whether it was important to um, facilitate reconciliation um, with uh, of God and people, whether it was important to express the re- reconciliation that was available between people and God, or whether it was important to convince people that they were now reconciled hmm. with God. Um, it might have been important in any one of, number of ways, but Christ saw it was it was very important. Um, in terms of the Old Testament, it really doesn't bother me that much. They lived around cultures where people were sacrificing their kids. Yeah. People were terrified of supernatural forces. So when God ste- steps in and says, hey, to Abraham, don't sacrifice Isaac. A sheep is enough. Mm. That, to me is within the cultural context overwhelmingly a message of restraint when it comes to bloodshed, um, not of sort of extravagant... Gore. You know, bloodlust. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I think that that's context. What is the case, getting to your comment, Ken, Ken about Christ? We can be thankful that we don't have to offer the daily sacrifices. Um, that sentiment... We can be thankful that the old system, which served its purpose, has found fulfilment. Is is the message of Hebrews? Yeah, that's that's the message of the whole thing. Uh, I'd hesitate um, to regard now the book of Hebrews may say some very important things about the Seventh Day Adventist domination. It may provide um, useful um, links in in various arguments that are constructed that that um, ascertain to our denomination. Uh, I think it would be fair to say that if they do, it's not the main point of the book. Uh, the main point of the book doesn't seem, as we've read it so far, to establish the the um, any particular significance for any particular body of people on earth. Overwhelmingly, the book seems to be pointing to Christ, mm. that Christ is the real, he's the real thing. The real messenger from God. He's the real Sabbath rest. He's the real um, Moses bringing people to the promised land. He's the real priests. Mm. Um, he's the real sacrifice. Yeah. And his covenant's the real covenant. Yeah, and, and in association with that, all of the these real things are sub, in some significant way different. You know, the when it was the new covenant last last week, the author of Hebrews has quoted a big passage from Jeremiah, seemingly to make quite a big point. This is not just a small tweak. You know, if the old covenant was any good at all, it could have continued, but it needs to be completely rethought. Um, that that seems that's the sense in which I felt um, the author was was arguing, and it's a little bit the same when it comes here to the high priestly system. It's not just a minor tweak. It's not oh we'll just move it from earth to heaven, or it's not we'll just do this. We'll do this. everything's changed. It's not once every year. It's once for all. It's right hand of God. It's the 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 priest was the sacrifice. The 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 Jesus was the priest and the lamb. Like like everything everything here is getting rethought. There's there's an excitement. I think that I'm feeling in the book of Hebrews from the author sort of wow this is like we can we can rethink everything in a bigger and much more dramatic way and and it all still works that's what the message of Jesus gives us confidence about yeah well let's leave it there then can, can we can we leave it can we leave it with the last the last couple of verses um 
But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Mm. Thank you, Ken. Uh, Anyone wishing to send comments to us for us to discuss in future episodes um, or perhaps wanting to correct us um, or place charges of heresy on us or whatever else so welcome to do so uh, at the at the email address sabbath school from home at gmail.com and uh just as always uh, once made this podcast is free to distribute so if you know of anyone who um, you think would would enjoy the discussion feel free to uh, point it out to them and and tell them where to find it and we're so glad that you've chosen to spend some time listening in on our discussion and uh, very glad i think to be going through the book of hebrews i'm warming to it um, I, uh, I'm getting a better sense of what the author's trying to achieve than I than I had at the start of the book, and I'm much more reconciled to the style uh, than I was in our earlier episodes. And uh, past halfway now, and uh, only a few chapters left.